the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back. February 4th, 2021. It keeps coming up. What is a conservative anyway? What is conservatism? William Bennett and John Cribb write, if you are a young person just beginning to pay attention to current affairs and politics, there are a couple things you should know. The first is that nearly 40 percent of Americans consider themselves conservatives. The second thing you should know is that despite their numbers, conservatives sometimes face questions and even sneering remarks about what values they stand for. Portions of the culture tend to depict conservatism as backwards and wrongheaded. They may try to convince you that conservatives are mean-spirited, greedy, or prejudiced people. Most of the national mainstream media news organizations have a strong liberal left bias. That includes everything from ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, NBC, PBS, and NPR. It also includes influential papers, the New York Times and the Washington Post. Hollywood, likewise, is a famously liberal place, and many of the television programs and movies it produces have the same bias. They carry messages that belittle the values and attack the institutions many Americans respect. Messages like family is down market, religious people are nuts, and businessmen don't care about poor people or the environment. College campuses may be the most anti-conservative places in the country. Liberal professors dominate most faculties. At many universities, conservative ideas are shouted down or cut off. Quote, instructors feel free to mock conservatives in the classroom and administrators pay scant attention when their posters are torn down or their sensibilities offended, close quote, writes a rare conservative Ivy League professor, Ruth Weiss. Liberal politicians routinely paint conservatives as mean-spirited extremists. President Barack Obama, for example, who is probably, until Joe Biden, the most liberal president in history, told Republicans in Congress, quote, Stop just hating all the time, close quote. In short, several of America's elite institutions give out anti-conservative messages, some subtle, some not so. The bearers of those messages aren't interested in helping anyone understand conservative principles. They're interested in smearing those principles. And if you are a conservative, then maybe smearing your, you too. And this, by the way, includes professional athletics. The term conservative comes from the Latin word conservare, which means to keep safe, maintain, preserve. Conservatives want to preserve society's best values and wisdom. The values that conservatives strive to maintain aren't new. Most have been around for a long time, passed down from generation to generation because they make life worth the living. Values like love your neighbor as yourself and honesty is the best policy. Virtues such as self-discipline, generosity, gratitude. When we forget or neglect these things, individual lives unravel, and civilizations can even come apart. When conservatives step back and look at the world, when they study human activity and history, they see a pattern. The pattern is a set of truths that run through all of time, principles about how best to live and treat our fellow human beings. These principles aren't truths that each person invents for himself or herself. They are universal standards 
of right and wrong, or laws of nature and nature's God, as the founders of the United States put it in the Declaration of Independence. They were in operation before you were born and will be around long after you die. The Ten Commandments found in the biblical books of Exodus and Deuteronomy are some of the greatest and most famous examples of such timeless moral laws. No better code of of conduct has ever been written. When people follow principles like thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not bear false witness, their lives tend to be fulfilling, meaningful, and good. When they break them, bad things generally happen. Conservatives recognize that enduring moral truths exist, and they are concerned with preserving ways that help us all live up to them. But conservatives don't claim to be morally superior to everyone else. Like everyone else, they are imperfect creatures. They also realize that the world is complicated, that applying principles to life requires judgment, prudence, and that sometimes there are exceptions to rules. For example, killing is generally wrong, but sometimes killing can be necessary self-defense, war. Conservatives take history seriously. They know there is much to be learned from the long record of human experience. It reveals both the possibilities and limitations of human nature. History contains much inhumanity and misery, to be sure, yet an honest reading shows that despite some great blots, the achievement of Western civilization and the United States in particular stands higher than the rest. None of this means conservatives want to save everything old. Sometimes old ideas, such as ancient prejudices, need to be rejected. Values are worth protecting only if they do good. Preserving society's best values and wisdom lies at the heart of conservatism, but there's more to it than that. In America, being conservative involves a commitment to the principles upon which this country was founded. Ideals found in the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, and other writings. Ideals such as that all people are created equal and all have the right to think and speak freely. Religious freedom. Conservatives believe that these founding principles have made the United States a powerful force for good, not only for their own citizens, but to the world. Although there is no neat and tidy list of American conservative beliefs, there are several ideas that conservatives tend to agree with. One handy way to remember those ideas is the acronym FLINT, which corresponds to the five concepts of free enterprise, limited government, individual liberty, national defense, traditional values. These five concepts are critical for understanding American conservative thought. George Nash, who wrote the great book The Conservative Intellectual Movement in America, wrote this. In 1945, no articulate... No articulate, coordinated, conservative intellectual force existed in the United States. There were, at the most, scattered voices of protest, profoundly pessimistic about the future of their country, and convinced that they were a forlorn, isolated remnant standing athwart history yelling stop. Gradually, during the first post-war decade, these voices multiplied, acquired an audience, and began to generate an intellectual movement. In the beginning, there was not one right-wing renaissance, but three, each reacting in diverse ways to challenges from the left. The first of these groupings consisted of libertarians and classical liberals, resisting the threat of the ever-expanding state to individual liberty, free market capitalism, and individual initiative. Convinced in the 1940s that America was rapidly drifting toward expanded state planning and socialism, toward what Frederick Hayek called the road to serfdom, 
These intellectuals offered a powerful defense of free market economics that achieved some influence by the 1950s, and it became more and more prominent over the years. And the Reagan administration's policies of tax rate cutting, deregulation, and the encouragement of private sector economic growth are the direct product of that rich intellectual history. Concurrently and independently of the libertarians, a second school of new thought emerged in America in the first post-war decade, the new conservatism, also known as traditionalism. Men such as Robert Nisbet and Russell Kirk represented this. Shocked by, to- excuse me, shocked by totalitarianism, total war, and the development of secular rootless mass society during the 1930s and 40s, these conservatives urged a return to traditional religious and ethical absolutes, and a rejection of the moral relativism which had allegedly corroded Western values and produced an intolerable vacuum filled by demonic ideologies and pseudo-religions. More generally European-oriented and historically-minded than the classical liberals, the traditional conservatives extolled the wisdom of European thinkers like Edmund Burke and Alexis de Tocqueville and called for a revival of Christian orthodoxy and classical natural law, pre-modern political philosophy, and mediating institutions between the citizen and the state. Third, there appeared in the 1940s and 1950s a more militant or evangelistic anti-communism, shaped decisively by a number of ex-communists of the 1930s, including Whitaker Chambers and Frank Meyer, James Burnham, many more. It was also reinforced by a number of articulate anti-communist exiled scholars from Eastern and Central Europe. These former men of the left and their European emigre allies brought to the post-war right a profound conviction that the West was engaged in a titanic struggle with an implacable adversary, communism, that sought nothing less than the conquest of the world. Each of these emerging components of the conservative revival shared a deep antipathy to 20th century liberalism. To the libertarians, modern liberalism was the ideology of the ever-aggrandizing bureaucratic welfare state, which would, if unchecked, become the totalitarian state, destroying individual liberty and private property. To the traditionalists, liberalism was a disintegrative philosophy, which, like acid, was eating away at the ethical and institutional foundations of traditional society, thereby creating a vast spiritual vacuum into which totalitarianism could enter. To the Cold War anti-communists, modern liberalism, relativistic, secular, anti-traditional, socialist, was by its very nature incapable of vigorously resisting an enemy on its left. Liberalism to them was part of the left and could not effectively repulse a foe with which it shared so many underlying assumptions. As James Burnham would put it, liberalism was essentially a means for reconciling the West to its own destruction. Liberalism was the ideology of Western suicide. During the late 1950s and early 1960s, these three independent wings of the conservative revolt against the left began to coalesce. The movement found its first popular embodiment in the editor of National Review, William Buckley, who, apart from his great talents, personified each impulse in the developing coalition. He was at once a Roman Catholic traditionalist, a defender of the free market libertarian, and a staunch anti-communist. Then came two other schools, Straussians and neoconservatives. They are lumped together often, usually by the left, but they are very different. They are also, to me, the most interesting. Straussians, led by the refugee 
Leo Strauss, revived classical political philosophy from the likes of Aristotle and Plato and merged it with the best of Judeo-Christian ethics, forming what is known as the Axis of Athens and Jerusalem. From Leo Strauss, you get his most famous of students like Alan Bloom and Harry Jaffa, Walter Burns and Hadley Arcus. Then you have, starting in the late 1960s, neoconservatism. It was not about foreign or defense policy, as so many say it is now. It was a group of disaffected liberals who saw the wreckage of the great society on domestic issues like crime, family, welfare, and applied rigorous social science to prove and show such wreckage. Irving Kristol, Newman Podhoritz, James Q. Wilson, William Bennett, Michael Novak were some of the most famous ones in this group. Sometimes people put Daniel Patrick Moynihan in there before he returned to liberalism in that group as well. As for me, I side ultimately with my teacher, Harry V. Jaffa, who put it this way, quote, it would certainly seem that the salvation of the West must come, if it is to come, from the United States. The salvation of the United States, if it is to come, must come from the Republican Party. And the salvation of the Republican Party, if it is to come, must come from the conservative movement within it. And the salvation of the conservative movement, if it is to come, must come from the renewal and reaffirmation of the principles of the American founding, embodied above all in the Declaration of Independence, such a reaffirmation as happened in the events that led to the election of Abraham Lincoln. Close quote. That, to me, is conservatism. I'm Seth Liebson. We'll be right back. Thank you for that. I just needed that today. If I had a hammock. <laughs> Hammer. <laughs> Trini Lopez. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. 602-508-0960. I'm going to return to those themes we talked about in the monologue on conservatism. Tevi Troy will join us at the top of the next hour to go through it and perhaps uh, countermand me. We'll see. I, I, uh, I know he heard it. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I wanted to be responsive to your calls of late and particularly the one yesterday asking me to give an overview of uh, the modern history of conservatism. We've done it a few different ways, a few different times here. <clears throat> that was perhaps one of the more comprehensive ones. Um, here's a prediction. Uh, Jen Psaki, the press secretary, is going to last maybe another month and a half. She is now two days in a row, two days in a row contradicted the director of the CDC, Rochelle Walensky. Now, of course it would be cheap, but it has to be done. If you could imagine Kayleigh McEnany contradicting the director of the CDC, or for that matter, the sainted Anthony Fauci, that would be everything in a, all the things that the news would be talking about. I'm thinking maybe the news media is going to start missing Kaylee McEnany. Maybe not. Maybe not. They're not giving Jen Psaki within a mile of the scrutiny they gave Kaylee McEnany. But I don't remember any of the Trump press secretaries actually contradicting the director of the CDC. 
especially when it came to COVID, comes to COVID. So Rochelle Walensky, Dr. Walensky, who's the CDC director, says there is, quote, there is increasing data to suggest that schools can safely reopen and that safe reopening does not suggest that teachers need to be vaccinated. Holy smokes. Going right into the face of the teachers unions. I'll read it to you again. There is increasing data to suggest that schools can safely reopen and that safe reopening does not suggest that teachers need to be vaccinated. She added to it, vaccinations of teachers is not a prerequisite for safely reopening schools. Vaccinations of teachers is not a prerequisite for safely reopening schools. This is Joe Biden's CDC director, Rochelle Walensky. You know, how we're going to do things differently here, how we're going to follow the science, how we're going to listen to the scientists. (coughs) Excuse me. Yesterday, Jen Psaki was asked about those comments because there is this ongoing, particularly in Chicago, debate about opening the schools. What did she say? What did Jen Psaki say? She said that Walensky's comments were not official guidance from the CDC. Quote, they have not released their official guidance yet on the vaccination of teachers and what would be needed to ensure safe reopening of schools. Well, I don't know then why you would allow to have the director of the CDC expatiating on these things, expostulating on these things, if it's not to be taken as guidance. What is the point of listening to the new director of the CDC where we're not going to be guessing? Remember, Fauci said the new rule here is we're not going to be guessing. Quote, Dr. Walensky spoke to this in her personal capacity. By the way, when Dr. Walensky spoke, she was speaking in front of the CDC with the backdrop of the CDC. Obviously, she's the head of the CDC, keeping the quote, but we're going to wait for the final guidance to come out so we can use that guide for schools around the country. The president believes that even with vaccinations for teachers or for any American, there are a number of other mitigation steps that are important to take. The wearing of masks, social distancing, ventilation. These are all factors that are important for reopening of schools. Has anyone doubted any of that? Is that new? Really? Did we need did we need um, Jen Psaki to tell us the wearing of masks, social distancing and ventilation are the important factors for reopening schools? They have done that. They have been given tens of millions of dollars to do that. They have doubled the budget of the U.S. Department of Education across the country to do that for the past almost year. Almost year. It's been done. And the holdout is vaccinations. And the head of the CDC says teachers don't need them to open the schools. But you see, there's a silliness going on here that I don't think most Americans understood until, I don't know, maybe the coronavirus, maybe, maybe, at least till recently. It's something journalist Richard Whitmire wrote. I'm a bit perplexed watching parents and politicians during COVID finally figuring out that school boards, district administrators, and local politicians don't actually run schools. Unions do. But don't feel naive. It took me a decade to figure that out, too. It's not even the Democratic mayors like Lori Lightfoot of Chicago. She wants the schools open. The San Francisco mayor wants the schools open. But you can't fight the unions. You can fight City Hall. That statement is wrong. Just can't fight the unions.
The Gentle Giant, right? Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. If you want to keep your health up, your energy high, and your immunity boosted, I can't give you better advice than to take balance of nature. It's what I've been taking for more than a year now. Friends and family as well. They love it as much as I do. All natural vine-ripened fruits and veggies picked at the peak of ripeness, reduced into the unique, into the unique, using their unique cold press process into vegetarian capsules. If you can't swallow or don't like swallowing capsules, really easy to open and put on drink or food. You get tens of thousands of vital nutrients with one daily dose of balance of nature. You get 31 different fruits and veggies and 10 servings of fruits and vegetables. It's a lot. Good, potent, healthy stuff. And they have a great deal right now. 35% off and free shipping off any new preferred order of their fruits and veggies. Give them a call at 800 Two four six eight seven fifty one, or go to balanceofnature.com. Make sure to use discount code BALANCE. Bill is in Phoenix. Hello, Bill. Hello, Seth. How are you? Nice to be talking with you. I'm doing fine. Um, as I explained to you on an email today, I'm getting a little fed up with the way things are going, and I don't believe that uh, our people in Washington are, are doing a very good job representing us. And they're getting run over by... We'll see, et cetera. And uh, I just think that it's time for um, the uh, uh, the Republicans in Washington, particularly we have three or four good ones in our state, to start fighting back. And there's enough open spots for them to go after the um, the, the Democrats. You know, they're, today they're going to probably remove this Marjorie Taylor Greene from her committee assignments. The Democrats are. One thing I would do is if I were the Republicans, I wouldn't take part in the vote. Uh, but that would just be a start to start moving on and punching back at these people. And um, one of the ways is to go after the people, and I mean unrelentingly, that the Democrats have who are wide open like Swalwell and AOC and Ilhan Omar and do it day in and day out and day in and day out, just the same way that Newt Gingrich did back 30 years ago, and he brought the Republican Party and the conservatives into the forefront of politics. That's really smart, Bill. Um, So, Bill, uh, what you are uh, advocating and what Newt Gingrich understood fundamentally was that there's really only one rule in politics, that you're either moving the ball on them or they're moving the ball on you. And Newt Gingrich understood that fundamentally, at least early on, 95, 96. You're moving the ball on them or they're moving the ball on you. Um, it's obviously harder to do when you are in the minority, but the minority is, uh, you know, the distinction between the minority and majority, the numbers we have, we have closed some, and I think we can be poised to get us into a 1995 framework in the next two years or in two years. I do think that. And I think you pay a special attention to people like, uh, Andy, Andy Biggs, who has said exactly what you said, by the way, he said, if they go for Marjorie Green, we're going to go for Ilan Omar. But I really like your suggestion which hadn't occurred to me, of no Republican even taking part of that vote. That is a really good suggestion because I'm going to guess that it's the entire Democratic Party that's going to vote one in one direction on this. And you know what? There's probably going to be several Republicans that join them and maybe more than several, but it would be a good test of leadership. We've had a lot of fights over the Republican leadership in the House, Kevin McCarthy, Liz Cheney, or this. If Liz Cheney and Kevin McCarthy are worth their salt, it would be a good test of their leadership 
for them to caucus, to get their caucus to not partake in this ridiculous vote. You can have vile, openly anti-Semitic rantings from Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, and nothing happens. I mean nothing. You can have direct threats against, by name, two members of the Supreme Court, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, by the minority leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, when he was the minority leader, and nothing happens. I mean nothing. And they pull this stunt about comments that were made before she was a member of Congress. Uh, The comments look to me pretty um, outrageous, if not worse than outrageous. But my gosh, my gosh, you know, her claims about 9-11, foolish, outrageous, stupid. But no more foolish, outrageous or stupid than Michael Moore's movie that Nancy Pelosi and Tom Daschle went to at opening night at a gala. And then gave him a prize seat at the Democratic National Convention in 2004. No more foolish than that. Shall we go back and examine Nancy Pelosi's comments from years past and see if maybe, maybe, maybe her committee assignments should be, should be uh, reassessed? Her speakership should be reassessed? She's negotiating with Assad against the president of the United States who told her not to. And she went anyway. Yeah, good call, Bill. Welcome back to the Seth Leapson Show. One of my favorite people joining us. Just mentioned him in the previous segment, actually, with a caller. And that is the chairman of the House Freedom Caucus representing Arizona's 5th Congressional District and newly a member, as I understand, out of the House Oversight Committee, Andy Biggs. Hi, Andy. Hey, Seth. Good to be with you. Nice to hear from you. Um, I was a caller previously. We were talking about uh, the goings-on in Washington and, uh, you know, this uh, crop of uh, crop of conservative leaders such as yourself, I said, they understand the first rule of politics, which is you're either moving the ball on them or they're moving the ball on you. You get that. You get that intuitively. And uh, obviously it's harder to do from the position of the minority, but you're making great strides. And I expect you'll be in the majority and not too terribly long here, Andy. But uh, one of the things you were doing was uh, taking um, taking a delegation down to the border uh, because you needed to highlight and wanted to highlight what's going on down there. And Joe Biden has issued a bunch of executive orders that are undermining all that. Tell us about it all. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it seems like so long ago, but it was just a few days ago, I had eight members of, the, of Congress with myself down on the border. And, uh, you know, we saw the 450 miles, not all of it, but the, a, a significant portion of the fencing that the president, uh, president's policies had put in. And I'll tell you, it makes a huge difference. And talking to folks down there, it's it's slowed things down. But the problem, of course, is they had gaps in there, uh, and they weren't able to finish. They had built infrastructure in order to put more fencing down, and and Joe Biden basically pulled the plug immediately. And so you have uh, one one of the places we went to had literally dozen or more uh, heavy equipment machinery sitting idle. We had thousands of people who've lost their jobs, um, and. Uh, and, and our borders less secure and safe now because of of this administration's policies. They're, they're ratcheting up uh, catch and release. They're ratcheting up uh, asylum. They're ratcheting up uh, sanctuary cities. They're ratcheting up. Uh, uh, they're easing up, I should say, refugee and asylum uh, criterion to get into the country illegally. 
they um, they're going to they've already put in they know they anticipate there'll be a surge they've already put into uh, service again another uh, uh, an accompanying ch- uh, minor uh, facility in Texas Carrizo Sp- Springs which incidentally under the pre- under President Trump's administration the same people that are lobbying his Biden's approach to immigration called that same facility a detention facility. Correct. Um, and now that it's under Biden, uh, it's it's not a detention facility. It's a temporary housing for children. Yeah, all you do. Yeah, right. No, right. Of course. So um, you're not. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, this is uh, this is this is governance by euphemism. Uh, Andy, right. uh, I was privileged to have you take me on a visit of the border, tour of the border, uh, about a little over a year ago, was it? I don't remember exactly, about a year and yeah, a half ago. That's about right. And it was it was so darned enlightening. And I think I asked you at the time, and I think you said at the time, I think I asked you and you responded, have you uh, ever been privileged enough to take Democrats on this tour? And you said you've invited and they don't come. And the reason I ask that, Andy, is do you think there are Democrats in the House or even maybe in the Senate who are with you on the position of the border and illegal immigration. And the reason I ask that is with the Democrats in charge of the House and Senate right now in White House, why is Joe Biden using executive orders? Well, I do think that there might be a few uh, in the House that that are with me. Not many, not many. And if they are, they, they've been scared into silence by by Pelosi. There's but, that. Yeah, right. right. Yeah. I, I would just say I, I got to give you this example because this drives me crazy because I'm always asking, can you work with people on the other side? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. so so I had my LD, uh, my legislative director um, reach out to um, staff on the other uh, a, a, a member of our delegation who's a Democrat on the other side. I said, you know, we introduced this last year, this individual uh, co-sponsored. Let's go ahead and see. Let's get see if we can get those co-sponsors back on this legislation. And my legislative director was told in uncertain terms that um, if I if if you're a Republican and you are um, on the other side uh, of an issue, you can't they, they won't work with you. Really? Really? Wow. Yes. Hold on. One yeah, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, so are they calling you out for a vote, Andy? Are we doing this? Uh, did you vote? Did we do this? In, did we make some news here? Did we get the live coverage of Andy Biggs's vote? <laughs> this is great. This is great. Not yet. They're going to do it. Yeah. Do you, if you have to go, let me know. Or, or you can just yell. One, one second. Yeah, sure. This is fun. Chairman? Chairman, how am I, how am I recorded? Mr. Baker, not recorded. Hi. Mr. Baker, yeah, what, you you're supposed it. to stand athwart history saying no. What did you just say I to, Andy? That, that they, we should always make sure. <laughs> uh, I, what I said is... It, I'm teasing is, you. This is amendment. No, 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 but you need to hear this. Um, uh, in judiciary, they they want to take out a, a reference to, to God when you're being sworn in. Oh, good Lord. And so, so we have an amendment to say, you know, whatever, so help me God, or... Yeah. You know, I, you know, I affirm yeah. or swear right. before God that I'll tell you this whole truth, never the truth. Right. And, and Democrats want to take that out. So we we put it in. And, 
And so that was what that vote was for. And, and they were are they really bothering voting. us with this? They are really st- spending our time on this kind of stuff. My God. So well, we decided. Okay, well, let's let's let's. I mean, they claim they want unity. One thing we could do to have unity is, is just um, pledge the allegiance every, when we come to the judicial sure. committee hearing. Sure. Oh, they said no, 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 can't do that. Okay, you can't do, you really can't pledge allegiance to the flag when you come into the judiciary. Well, you would have thought uh, Democrats learned when D- Dukakis fell on that one, but maybe yeah. it's a different country. So, you think I mean, it's a different country? It might be a different country. It, it, it is, and, and, and we're seeing it happen so fast, Seth. You know, not to change that we were talking no, about okay. the border, but it's all right. but but you're seeing this happen so fast that the attack on the border. Okay, you know, we go into depth and detail about that, but but I will I guarantee you. Um, the the number of unaccompanied children that we had in 2019 was over 450,000 unaccompanied minors. It will be well above that of course this fiscal year, of course, because because of what they're doing. Yeah, and that means magnetizing them, these, right? They're they're creating right. a magnet. Yeah, right. Yeah, and these these kids, many of them will be abused um, in this this trafficking. It's horrible, mm-hmm. and these and these the plan here, the immigration plan that he has is gonna gonna cause that and uh we can't seem to get our our counterparts to to understand that the cartels really do control the other side of the border oh they do you showed it to me i saw it with my own two eyes we were there with um several other reporters what you might call more in the mainstream vein of things but i remember we saw people crossing andy remember we watched it happen yes and we saw we saw um a, a man and a woman and like two kids with backpacks and the reporter one of these mainstream reporters said to me well there goes a family and i said how do you know that's a family you have no idea if that's a family it's likely right. not a family and it turned out it wasn't that's correct we have no, to hold right. them accountable and, and 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 we only can keep them for 20 days trying right. to figure out whether it's right. or not right all right, you'll keep them honest. You'll stay close to us, Andy. You're doing good work. I Absolutely. know they're tiring you out, but we want you tired. We want you busy. We want you yeah, really. Yeah, you got to be exhausted. Well, we want you that. It's thank better, right? Andy, thank you, thank you, sir. The man in the arena, Andy Biggs. Makes you want to move into the 5th Congressional District. I'll tell you that much. We'll be right back. Someone just sent this to me and uh, cognizant of it being Black History Month, I thought it was it would be a good this would be a good place to fit it in. It's Larry Elder on Martin Luther King, and he is quoting from really one of Martin Luther King's more conservative. We talked about conservatism. There's a lot of conservatism, actually, in his letter from a Birmingham jail. He goes into uh, some classical political philosophy. uh, uh, Martin Luther King does, including natural right and justice. And he goes into uh, Aquinas and Augustine. Here's Larry talking about it. We just celebrated the birthday of Martin Luther King, and I wonder what he would be thinking if he were here today. In that connection, I recently reread his letter from a Birmingham jail, which he wrote in 1963. The letter was written to fellow clergymen, many of whom were white, moderates, who didn't want him in Birmingham because they felt Well, he was kind of an outside agitator, and yeah, we agree with the goals of the civil rights movement, but maybe now isn't quite the time. So MLK wrote this to fellow pastors, and here's what he said. Perhaps it is easier for those who have never felt the stinging darts 
of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see the vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that fun town is closed to colored children and see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness towards white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs of reading white and colored, when your first name becomes and your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given their respected title, Mrs. Larry's point here is to think about how that country just doesn't exist anymore. Joe Biden may want you to think it exists. Kamala Harris may want you to think of it, of, of, that it still exists. But you listen to those words of Martin Luther King and you look around today. That country does not exist. They're the ones who have turned the clock back, not us. Tevi Troy on conservatism coming right up.